Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Let's, uh, let's begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. It's good to see everybody. Welcome back. I, I was, again, in this time of, of trial, uh, I'm looking forward to the catharsis of, of seeking consolation philosophy. So let's dive in. Let's, let's kind of uh, step out of the mire of the particular uh, with all the challenges associated with, with our present life and connect by way of reason to certain universal truths they can help elevate our mind and our heart out of the mire of what is fleeting and what is passing, uh, not, not to, to escape from the world, but to give us a sense of peace and tranquility of soul so that we might engage the world and bring that peace that ultimately comes from Christ himself to others. Okay, so let's enter into this, this spirit this evening. Now, last time we met, I was really happy with, with uh, our ability to kind of uh, make some headway. I, I think we we really did a good job of building upon the foundation we set the first evening, uh, and then launching out into the deep of his treatise on virtue in general. Uh, what I'd like to do is uh, this evening is to spend a little time. Okay, again, repetition is the mother of learning, so I'm not going to go back over everything we did, even by way of review regarding the first book. But I'll say a few comments regarding the first book. And then a few more comments regarding what we discussed last time uh, regarding virtue in general. And then spend some time speaking about what we have not yet discussed, uh, which is some of these particular virtues, uh, which we will then segue from there into our discussion of friendship, uh, which is the, the heart of our discussion, which will occupy most of our time at the very end of this first half hour or, or 35 minutes and into the second half hour. And then we'll finish by discussing contemplation and, and the role uh, Aristotle finds uh, contemplation, the role contemplation has in a life of a thriving man. And again, along the way, I'm going to engage those people who are actively participating by asking some kind of basic questions uh, that I think many of you are, are, are very keen to answer and capable of answering, as I've discovered. And then we're going to spend some time a, a little bit more at the end of this hour uh, to ask those meta questions. And the big meta question I want to come back to is the question of to what extent is what, is, what Aristotle is saying here about a thriving human life? To what extent is what he is saying here compatible uh, with what we know by way of faith uh, regarding a life of a thriving man? Okay, so maybe keep that thought in, in the background as we move forward through his thought. Uh, from things we've discussed into things we have yet to discuss. Okay, so without further ado, 
we talked about the whole first book is committed to laying the groundwork uh, regarding the purpose of the ethics. Uh, the purpose is, of course, to discuss what human thriving is. And so he paints in broad strokes what human thriving looks like in the first book before kind of refining and making more concrete and more detailed what that picture looks like in the latter books. So we discovered that Aristotle's ethics is teleological. We can only understand human activity by understanding that man always acts for an end, a purpose, some good, not a moral good, but some good that's attractive. And that ultimately, okay, we act for some good that he calls is a chief good. That means some end or good that is not uh, a partially good or good as a means to something higher, but something that is not a means in any sense is the highest good that ultimately explains what we all do. And he discusses by, uh, by way uh, of the first four chapters that eventually he comes to the conclusion that this is happiness. And yet to say it's happiness is a platitude, okay? It, it, we need to, to, to clarify what exactly it means to be happy uh, because people understand happiness in a variety of ways as we discover in our own experience. Uh, and so he goes into discussing what good, what chief good our happiness consists in. Uh, and, and we have some clues he gives us when he offers his definition of happiness in chapter six. We have some clues about what this good will be like. This good will be final. This good will render man self-sufficient in his happiness uh, in the sense that he won't be, he will not long for anything else. Uh, and so we see some potential options can be cast aside. Wealth cannot be man's happiness because wealth itself is a means to some other good. Uh, we get wealth for the sake of buying stuff, okay? And even pleasure, which is a good of the body, is insufficient to satisfy man. Why? Because it doesn't render man self-sufficient. Pleasures are fleeting. And what's more, pleasures can be taken away. Uh, if our body is afflicted by some disease, we, we cannot enjoy pleasures of the body. And therefore, it doesn't render man's happiness self-sufficient. So what good is capable of satisfying our deepest longings and of rendering us fully thriving? He says the way we find this out is to look at man's purpose. And man's purpose, because we're talking about a thriving man and a thriving thing fulfills its purpose. Man's purpose, what distinguishes him from all other things in the material universe is reason. And so a thriving man, he determines, will manifest his rationality in everything he thinks and everything he does in everything he feels. And this will render a man and his happiness self-sufficient. How so? Because it's by way of our intellect and our will, which are powers of the soul, that we attain goodness, okay, and that we attain truth, which are spiritual goods. Now, these goods, like the faculties, the intellect, and the will themselves, are inviolable. You can take someone's external goods, you can take, uh, you, you can harm their body, but the goods of the soul are a man's, uh, are, are his own. And they cannot, we cannot be dispossessed of these goods against our will. And therefore, a thriving man in his thriving will manifest uh, his rationality in everything he thinks, does, and feels. And he does this by instilling habits that we call virtues into those powers. And that's why he defines 
the happy man as an activity of the soul in accordance with virtue and a life of complete virtue, okay? Uh, because it's virtue that allows man, okay, to not just act as a rational animal, but to act well as a rational animal, okay? All men by nature can play the piano. All men by nature can kick a soccer ball, but only someone who has the right habits can play soccer well, can play the piano well, and it's only the man who you learns to use his reason well uh, that is going to thrive as a human being, okay? And it's virtue that allows us to do that, okay? As we discovered last time, and he gets into in book two, virtue is a state of character. And that means it's an acquired habit. It's not innate, but once it is acquired, it colors everything we do. It disposes us to act but in a special way. It allows us to act with ease, with pleasure, with regularity. And that's why a thriving man is thriving, who has the right habits so that he uses his intellect continually to turn towards truth, his will towards what is rationally determined to be good, and to infuse a kind of habitual rational order into his passions, okay? This is a thriving man. Uh, and yet, there's more to say about what virtue is, and that's what we discussed last time. So reviewing that just a bit, okay? Virtue is, as we've discussed, a habit, okay? A moral habit. And that's why he says it's concerned with choice. Choice are voluntary acts. Acts done because they originate from us. It, it doesn't involve coercion. Uh, it involves us acting but not being acted upon. And it involves us acting with knowledge, okay? And, and also with something that sets us apart from even animals and children, uh, a moral agent acts with rational deliberation and calculus about whether he ought to do something or not. And so whatever decisions we make, and this is from book three, at the beginning of book three, on the basis of calculated decisions about what we ought to do or ought not to do, Actions that proceed from that kind of calculus form habits. If there are order choices we're making, we'll form good choices. If there are uh, good habits if, and, and morally good habits are called virtues. If we make bad choices, it forms morally deviant habits called vices. Okay. Now, what exactly is virtue? Okay. Virtue is a habit. We got that. Okay. That is innate. It's, a, it's not innate. It's acquired. Uh, and, and it disposes us to act and perform uh, moral actions uh, with ease and pleasure and regularity, as we've discussed previously. We also discussed that virtue is a mean, okay? So a thriving thing uh, does, not, uh, does not indulge in excess or defect. Uh, a living thing to survive has to have light, has to have food, etc. cetera, uh, but, but it can't have too much or too little food or too little light or heat. The same is true with our moral life, okay? As we saw in some of these, these drawings, okay, uh, a thriving man, okay, will find a kind of rational mean in his actions, in his passions, okay? He will not feel excessively or defectively. He will not act excessively or defectively. And virtue consists in a mean, okay? Now, what I'd like to do uh, is, is to kind of elaborate a tiny bit more on that. All right, great. So, so, so virtue is a mean, 
Okay. In regard to any action, if it's fear, if, if, if it's confidence, these are passions, uh, the virtuous mean will manifest a balance, okay, of these extremes. And so courage, we discovered, as a mean, has something in common uh, with, with uh, the vice of cowardice, that is calculation before acting. And it also has something in, in common with rashness, and that is a willingness to face terrible evils. But unlike the rash man, the virtuous mean, the courageous man, calculates before he acts. And unlike the coward, okay, he is willing to face temporal evils if the uh, prudence, which is the rational principle that determines the mean, says for the sake of what is just and noble that he ought to face a temporal, temporal evil uh, for the sake of, of some noble end. Okay? And so we find that virtue is a mean, a mean between extremes of excess and defect. Uh, and we also find a few other things that uh, virtue is a mean in the sense of being having something in common with each extreme, and the extremes are more opposed to one another, okay? And we also saw last time, just by way of review, again, that uh, virtue is often nearer to one extreme than the other. So whatever, whatever uh, extreme is, is most opposed to, to the rational mean, and we can kind of see this by whatever extreme we often tend to naturally, uh, it is that extreme that we ought to be more opposed to, okay? So that is a, a lot of, of what we discussed last time, okay? Uh, then to finish up uh, with, with the discussion of virtue in general, we only added that virtue is a mean relative to us. And what does that mean? It's, it, it means that what is virtuous for one person at one time is not always the same thing that is virtuous for the same person at a different time. Just like the virtuous mean regarding pleasures of touch and taste, okay? Uh, if we look at temperance, uh, uh, which deals with the passion of pleasure, the virtuous mean for temperance varies depending on circumstances. Uh, so that the virtuous mean of, of, of temperance on Good Friday is actually extreme asceticism. And the virtuous mean in Easter involves feasting. And so his understanding of the fluctuating mean prevents us from adopting a kind of facile understanding. Uh, the virtue is just not eating too much or too little. But no, it's, it's eating as we ought and as prudence demands according to the circumstances we find ourselves in. And so we see that virtue isn't just about moderation, but no, virtue is an extreme. And it's an extreme in this sense. One, that it's hard to hit the mean. It is extremely difficult. It takes a great deal of experiential wisdom and habits built up over time to know exactly what the mean is in any given situation, okay? Uh, and, and, and it's also opposed, okay, we, we mentioned last time, in a radical way to both vices. And it's this way that the, the virtue is not mediocrity, because it manifests a perfect moral order, whereas both vices manifest different kinds of moral disorder. Okay, now that is all we said last time, and, and that's my attempt to review some of the signature takeaways from our discussion last time. 
What I'd like to do now is to put a little bit more meat on the bone regarding what the virtuous life looks like, okay, in the concrete by walking through some of the virtues that Aristotle identifies, okay? Now, you read last time about courage and temperance, okay? Uh, I'll say a few things about each one of these as we kind of wade our way through them. And then we'll get, I think, by the end of it, a better picture of what a well-rounded, thriving man looks like. Because as I mentioned, okay, in this graph here, okay, as I mentioned, okay, the virtuous man will have different virtues that perfect all of the actions of his will and different virtues that help him feel as he ought in any given situation, okay? And so this is a thing I, I gave to you to kind of fill out, okay? And I, I filled it out a little bit more than we did last time together, okay? So when looking at the different virtues, and he presents all of them in Book 2, Chapter 7, there is a, an action or passion that the virtue is consider, concerned with. And then in every case, there is a mean and there is a defect and excess, okay? So for instance, okay, uh, as we talked about courage, courage is the mean, it regards fear and confidence, and it depends whether we're talking about fear or confidence, which is the excess, which is the defect. We spoke of, te we spoke of temperance. And we find temperance is a mean in regard to pleasures of touch and taste. Uh, and therefore, the, the virtuous man, okay, who is temperate, will order his attitude towards sensual goods so that he's not puritanical in his attitude towards them, but also that he's not, and this is where men normally incline, is not prone to self-indulgence, okay, which he sees as a character type of someone who is childish, okay? Now we'll see with every virtue, okay, it manifests man's reason and also the perfection of his social nature. And so it's not surprising that self-indulgence makes a man childish, okay? Uh, and insensitivity makes him almost inhumane, okay? Uh, but his rational animality is perfected. When he recognizes he, he does need to eat and drink, and that's part of life for a rational animal, but that he is able to infuse a kind of rational order so that he orders his emotions uh, in such a way that they do not co compromise his, his uh, rational uh, acts of justice. And so it's true with all the virtues that have to do with passion, okay? with all the virtues that have to do with passion, courage, temperance being two of those, uh, all of those that have to do with passion allow, uh, and the why, why we have them, angels don't have virtues that pertain to passion, because there is the possibility that our emotional life can frustrate our goodwill. The moral life can be distilled in knowing what is good in doing it. But because we have these passions in us, we have to order them so that it, they can encourage us to do what is good and not discourage us from doing what is good. And we can see that fear, excessive fear, can compromise us. We could want to do what is good, but once we are overcome with fear, we can shrink from doing what is good and noble. Uh, sometimes for the person who is self-indulgent, because of his uh, attitude towards sensual goods of touch and taste, 
when it's time. Now, there's times to indulge in food and drink, but when it's time to focus on spiritual goods and the life of the mind, the self-indulgent man cannot pull himself away. And therefore, he needs that virtue in order to be perfected even in his rational life. And this is how all these virtues are tied together, okay? Now, running through a few more of them, okay? Uh, And this is just so you get a picture of what a completely virtuous man looks like. The completely virtuous man is liberal. That is, and I'm going to just say a few things on each of these. He gives the whole book four as a treatment of all these virtues and their opposing vices in great detail. Uh, But I think it's helpful. Think of an example of liberality. Uh, He gives all these very concrete examples. And think of concrete examples of the people with different vicious dispositions. That will help you kind of make this incarnate and his thought here. So the liberal man is generous. He gives money as he ought. And the generous and liberal man or woman can be, uh, doesn't have to be a person of great means, okay? It can be like the, the, the woman who gave, uh, uh, who gave from her poverty in scripture. Uh, she gave, you know, what she had in a generous way. Uh, that person can be as liberal as the wealthy person, okay? Uh, and the mean then will vary, obviously, depending on, on, on circumstance. And it is something that people, th- that, that people cherish in a friend, okay? And this is even where we're going to discuss friendship. Liberality is particularly connected to friendship because everyone wants to be friends with someone who's generous. And we see that meanness, to be stingy with one's money, compromises our ability to make friends. It compromises our social nature. And in a way that's worse than prodigality, which is to give excessively. Okay? Uh, and so the good man will be someone who's generous. Now, one point I'll make about liberality, and then we'll move right, right along, uh, that is highly memorable, is the liberal man, he says, never wants to be indebted. And so it's a mark of someone who is virtuous and liberal to not want to be indebted to anyone. Uh, a great example of this, I think, uh, is, is from Cinderella Man, the movie. Uh, and in this movie, this great boxer find, uh, it suffered uh, an injury that led his career to be derailed. And then he suffered the Great Depression. And at, at this one moment, uh, he promised, though, they'd never send their kids away. But his kids were sick. He was away uh, trying to get work. And they, they, they turned off the power because they hadn't paid the bills. And they sent his kids away to live with his wife's family. And it was only at that moment that he went to the government to get a handout. But uh, spoiler alert, once he got back on his feet and became successful, what was the first thing he did? He gave that money back. The money that was given to him by the government, he returned. Because the liberal man, the man who is truly good, he even takes money, but he takes money for the sake of giving. And so it's utterly compatible. Unlike with prodigality, uh, the the liberal man tries to make money and he invests wisely. He puts money in the bank, but all of it is other-centered. He always wants to take money only for the sake of giving. Uh, And it's a beautiful portrayal of a virtuous man in his treatment of liberality. And then he has this virtue of magnificence, which which he gets into next. And I'll say, again, just a couple things about it. 
This has to do with giving of money on a large scale, and, and only the very wealthy can be magnificent. But here, just take in a little bit of what he says about this excellent virtue. And here uh, is the virtue of magnificence, which deals with giving of money on a, on a grand scale, giving lots of money, uh, large sums of money. Uh, he says the magnificent man gives tastefully, artfully, in a rational way, in a way that's upbuilding. He gives by, by building monuments, by in, endowing performing arts complexes, uh, by giving, there's a common, uh, giving for the sake of the common good uh, is, is what this virtue deals with. Uh, whereas the niggerly man, kind of like Mr. Potter from uh, It's a Wonderful Life, uh, if, if I'm getting my movies correct, I think that's right. You, know, you can see how it corrupts the soul to not be generous. Or vulgar. Uh, the vulgar man is someone who has diamond-crusted steering wheels, you know, and has, has a, you know, a, 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 a diamonds for their, their cat leash. I, I, don't, I don't know what you want. Or Money Mayweather, who has hangers, uh, the famous boxer, of cars that he never drives. And you see how there's an egocentric nature to what they do with their money and not a kind of other-centric nature. And just running through a few more of these virtues very briefly, uh, the man of proper pride, uh, he says, desires the highest honors in the right way. Now he says the only person who can desire the highest honors is someone who's worthy of them. So only the completely virtuous man can desire the, the highest honors. And so the person is completely virtuous. They don't care what the masses think about them. They only want to be confirmed in their dignity by other man, uh, men of esteem. And so if you've studied really hard and, and you've done well in an exam, uh, the virtuous man wants to be confirmed by their teacher, wants to be confirmed by someone else in their own excellence. Uh, and this is the man of proper pride. Uh, the man of undue humility is not interested in honors. And why that's a defect, he says, is because it can lead him to shrink from maximizing his own talents, okay? Uh, and, and so it's, it's, a, it's a deficiency in that sense. Uh, and a couple other virtues, we'll just go into a couple more. The mean of friendliness. Now, this virtue is utterly, it's a social virtue for him, and it's utterly essential to making it in the world, even being successful financially, being successful in the workplace. Uh, I know when we hire for a job, there's a lot of talented people that apply, but at the end of the day, uh, the tiebreaker goes to who you want to work with the rest of your life. And so friendliness is utterly essential, not only for your thriving uh, in terms of your own moral life, but even in terms of getting along with others. And so in, in terms of the action of giving pleasure to others in all circumstances of life, uh, the, the friendly man gives pleasure to others, but also gives pain. Okay, it's the obsequious man like Mr. Collins in Pride and Prejudice, who is just gushing only with pleasure. And then he even adds for a utilitarian end, uh, uh, which makes him a flatterer. Okay, Uh, and and then the churlish man is someone who gives pain to others. And like the boorish person uh, in terms of giving amusement, uh, which is opposed to wittiness, which is the mean in terms of giving amusement brings pain to others and is a nuisance. It's hard to be around. You never want to be around a churlish person. But the friendly man, you do want to be around. 
And that's why friendliness often goes hand in hand with someone who is capable of friendship. And so this is a, a slight window into all of these fantastic virtues he speaks of. Truthfulness. The person isn't boastful, but isn't mock modest. Okay, uh, the, 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 the mean in regard to anger, uh, which we find is, is uh, obviously a passion we have. Uh, the gentleman is, and he errs on the side of inirascibility, uh, is only angry when he needs to, for the sake of what is good and noble. And so we see with all of these virtues, okay, that's what it looks like for a rational man to thrive in his rationality. It, it affects everything he does. He hits the mean. Everything he feels, he hits the mean. And in everything he does and feels, it, it, it heightens and deepens his own excellence uh, because these habits have to be used or we lose them. And they can always be sunk deeper into us such that they become like a second nature and character. Then we become identified by them, by he is a just man, he is a liberal man, etc. Okay, but the danger is the vices too have the same effect. Uh, and so there is a, a real need, especially because all these virtues go hand in hand, the vices go hand in hand. We see that the rash man is prone to boastfulness. Uh, we see that certain vices come with other vices in hand. And so uh, it, it's imperative that we develop the right prudence to know the mean and then use our own experience and, and, and do a kind of examination of conscience at the end of the day to see how we hit the mean in regard to these actions, these passions. And that experiential wisdom will help us slowly work into and become that man of complete virtue that Aristotle is discussing. Okay, so that is uh, a, hopefully a, a good window into there's, I, I highly recommend you read all of that wonderful section of text, okay? And now we are prepared. I'd love to discuss justice and other virtues in more detail, but we don't have time for that this time. There's more for you to do. But I want to discuss now friendship and, and ask a few questions about it that will then lead into the second half of our discussion, okay? So maybe I'll start with this and, and now engage you guys dialectically. What, how is friendship like a virtue? Okay, given our whole discussion of virtue, okay, we just talked about virtue in general, gave a bunch of particular examples. Aristotle starts his treatise on friendship by comparing it to a virtue, comparing it to virtue. What, what, what's the comparison? Now, how are they similar, Annie? Yeah. So, so friendship has, you can go over to the side of, of, of a defect mm -hmm. And have an ex excess, if you if you will. So he talks about um, friendship for the sake of it being utilitarian, or just to get something, some pleasure out of it. Okay, yeah, that's uh, so that's good. Now he will say, Annie, that friendships of utility and friendships of pleasure, okay, are legitimate forms of friendship, okay. Uh, now, these are friendships that I might have with my barista, okay? Uh, those kinds of friendships are good and natural. Now, those kinds of friendships, though, also are had by bad men, okay? There is one friendship, however, that stands out as a friendship that is only characteristic of good men, 
And that is a friendship that is called perfect and perfect friendship. But we're going to look at, as we look at the different forms of friendship over the course of the beginning of next hour, uh, we can point to the natural good in those friendships. And yet how the friendship of the good is a special kind of friendship uh, that is really characteristic only of good people. But how else is friendship like a virtue? Think of what a virtue does. Okay, Teresa, go ahead. Yeah, take a step. He talks about how without friends, no one wants to live. Okay, good. About how it has a good and an end in and of itself. Wow. And okay, that's great. Okay, all those are good. Yeah, go ahead, Stephen. Add something to it, please, Stephen. It oh, correlates to the three loves, three levels of love. Okay, okay, good. Yeah, it, okay, it, it does. And how about this? Okay. Virtue is a habit, right, that makes doing good easy and pleasurable. And think of what it's like to try to thrive in life without friends. Friends make doing good easier, more pleasurable, okay? They obviously lead to us fulfilling our social nature. Uh, It's hard to get up in the morning to work out. But if you have a friend doing it, you can do it. It's hard to go to fight a battle and stand out there on the front lines by yourself. But if you have a band of brothers, you can do it. Okay. Uh, if you are being sent by our Lord to evangelize to the pagans, he sent them out two by two. Okay. There is something about going together. Okay. That fortifies man and makes him more capable of living his rational social nature. It allows him, it makes doing good in everything he does and choosing the rational end easier, more pleasurable, more consistent, more regular when he does that with a friend. And plus, uh, other things we notice, you know, a man's experiential wisdom is essential for him knowing what the virtuous mean is. With a friend, his experiential wisdom becomes your own, okay? Uh, You've heard the statement, two heads are better than one, okay? Uh, With a friend, his life becomes your life, okay? And you, in some ways, grow by his experiences, okay, or her experiences, okay? All right, so there's much, a lot of other things to talk about, okay, Uh, about friendship. And that's where we're going to start after our brief five-minute break. Okay, great. Good, Good to see you guys back. Now, okay, good. So we're, we're hitting friendship here. So let's start from the top. Uh, in his discussion in book eight on friendship, which is highly memorable, uh, saw a lot of philosophers uh, you know, in, in, in kind of the modern era that give a lot of attention to friendship. It's something more characteristic of, of the ancient world. Of course, Aquinas writes a commentary on this, and his commentary on Aristotle's uh, ethics is, is very interesting what he has to say about this as well. Uh, but let's start with some of the basics. So it's it's either a virtue or like a virtue. And like virtues, it disposes us to do good easily and inspires us to noble actions, okay? And then he brings up a little bit of a debate. Uh, is friendship more a, a kind of likeness to do uh, birds of a feather flock together or do opposites attract? And it would seem that actually friendship has both elements, okay? Uh, that people have to be like one another, at least regarding what they love, okay? Or, you know, they have to have a mutual interest that brings them into uh, a relationship. And so there has to be a kind of likeness. And yet, where there is some kind of difference, uh, you're able to kind of profit from one another. But he kind of leaves that up in the air, okay, whether friendship is more 
uh, about you know people who are more like each other should be friends or more unlike each other. It seems like it has elements of both. Okay, and then he begins to discuss the kinds of friendship. Okay, but before that, even in, in book two, he speaks of what is characteristic of all forms of friendship. Okay. Uh, so he says the kinds of friendship, it says right at the beginning of, of chapter two, may perhaps be cleared up if we first come to know the object of love. And therefore, whatever object binds together the two friends, that is going to be what characterizes their friendship. And so if it's a useful good that binds them together in mutual interaction, then it will be a friendship of utility. If they principally are interacting with each other regularly for the sake of, of pleasure, then we can speak of a friendship of pleasure. And if the pursuit of the good, okay, or man's full state of thriving uh, is what binds them together, then we can speak of it as a kind of perfect friendship. Now, in all these forms of friendship, he says, there's important grounds that they're built upon, okay? Because we can love lifeless objects, it says, and this is still in chapter two. But we don't speak of our love of wine as, as being, you know, we don't have friendship with wine. And so the love has to be mutual, okay? So one of the characteristics of any friendship whatsoever is that it's mutual. It's reciprocated, okay? Uh, we speak of, of Romeo doting on Rosaline. He doesn't love her, doesn't have a friendship. He just is infatuated. Friendship involves a kind of mutual love, okay? And that mutual love has to be reciprocal goodwill, it, it associates here, uh, a kind of goodwill that is reciprocated and recognized, okay? Uh, people have to be aware uh, that the other person likes them, that you like them, and that you want to enter into a rapport of goodwill, okay, uh, that is reciprocal. Now, the friendships are distinguished, as he gets into in, in the third chapter, regarding what goodwill, what good that, that both parties will for the other. And, and I think this is key, okay? It, it, it's, it's completely compatible, because he notes that the Christian can only have a few and we'll talk about why this is. Very few friendships of the good, okay? And so I think we have to uh, realize with Aristotle that you want to have goodwill towards all men. Now, you have a friendship with those people where you enter into a consistent relationship where you pursue some good collectively. And yet you always will, and that, this is where the goodwill comes in, you always are willing that they get the same good that you get out of the relationship. Okay, so in a friendship of utility, it's not where you're just using someone, you know, and, and so because that is, is what Annie was talking about. And that's actually immoral to, to use someone for pleasure, to use someone uh, for your own end, to treat a person as a means to an end is, is something objectionable, period. But if I will that the barista gets money from from me and, 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 and they and that's a useful good. And I get you know, the espresso, which is, well, maybe more of a pleasurable good. I don't know. Uh, you know but it's a good that, that is valuable for me. And if that is what binds us together, then we can speak of having a kind of friendship utility. Maybe even better, different business associates, they, they make these parts for us. We pay them for these parts. 
And, and there is a relationship of trust, okay, that, that governs those interactions. And, and those are fine and good. Uh, it says they're often characteristic of the elderly to have a lot of uh, high need of friendship of utility, whereas the, the young have friendships of the next kind, which is a friendship of pleasure. And this doesn't mean necessarily disordered pleasure. No, you, you just you, you want to interact with them in a way that brings levity to, to uh, what is otherwise a burdensome life. So this pleasure could be in the form of humor. This pleasure could be uh, just in, in the form of the pleasure you get from someone's friendly with you. Uh, that would be, and if what binds you together is that you both uh, get pleasure from that, then that's good. Now, it has to be said, though, that these friendships are more transient. Because if you take away the pleasurable good or the useful good, uh, the friendship has a tendency to die very quickly. The higher form of friendship, which interestingly presupposes the lower forms of friendship, friendships of utility and pleasure, pleasure and utility are part of a friendship of the good. Okay, In fact, a friendship of the good or perfect friendship, those, those friendships are useful. Those friendships are pleasurable. If someone is a perfect friend, you rejoice, Aristotle says, in their presence. And yet what is distinct is that what characterizes your association and your interaction with one another is precisely your pursuit of man's end, okay? A life of complete virtue. That is what you pursue together. And that binds you in a special sort of relationship. Okay. Now, what are the other characteristics that he notes of a friendship of the good? I know a lot of you guys did some reading here. So uh, obviously it's going to be pleasurable. It's going to be useful. But what else then is going to characterize this form of friendship? Okay. Go ahead, Annie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he he was getting into something deeper talking about that this friendship gets into this idea of relationship. Okay. Um, yeah. And, and so what, what, yeah, what kind of, what characterizes that relationship? Time and familiarity. Time and familiarity. Good. Okay. So it's built on trust. Okay. So this kind of friendship has to pr- uh, persevere through times of difficulty. Uh, so a, a friendship with a good, you know, that, they're not in it just to get something out of it from you. And so when your fortune changes, you know, they're going to abandon you. Okay. Uh, no, like the, the friend can be counted on in good times and in bad. And so it is a friendship that has been tried, has been refined in adversity. Okay. And so it's rooted. It requires time and familiarity. Okay. Uh, they have eaten salt together. Okay. They've gone through adversity together. And so it's rooted on trust, okay, in a very, very important way, okay? What else characterizes it, okay? And it goes into this in both the fourth and and into uh, even the fifth chapter. Uh, What else characterizes this form of friendship? Okay, go ahead, Teresa. There's a mutuality in it, Mm -hmm. but that's kind of in all of the friendships, right? That that would be, that would be. And so, uh, so what is common? Maybe let's even start with this. Stephen, what were you going to say? 
it makes a distinction between believing and knowing. You could believe early on that you're going to be friends, but not actual friendship is, a, is based on knowledge that's developed over time. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I, I would say that that is true of friendships of utility. You have to know that there is a, a, a mutual relationship of, 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 of exchanging useful goods uh, among each other. Uh, so, so what else sets a friendship of the good apart? Annie, go ahead. Yeah. So um, a true friendship is, it's either timeless or at least it's of long duration. Okay. Okay. That's good. It, it, it lasts. Okay. This is good. Uh, other, other points, Teresa, go ahead. Um, you enjoy the friend as a good in their own sake. Okay, good. Okay. So you desire them not for the sake of some other good, but, but for, for their own sake. Okay. That, that is characteristic of this form of friendship. Well done. And other things that characterize it, okay, is that both parties have to be virtuous, okay? Obviously, you can't pursue a life of complete virtue if both people aren't virtuous and interested in pursuing a life of virtue. If they're interested in pursuing a life of pleasure, a life of utility, if they think wealth or fame or something else is their highest good, you cannot have a friendship with a good with that person. So there has to, both parties have to be good. Okay. Uh, both parties have to be committed then to a life of virtue. Okay. Both parties have to rejoice in each other's presence. Both parties have to obviously trust one another. And then another important thing that makes it enduring is they have to, Aristotle says, the, the permanent quality is because they spend time together. In fact, they have to spend a lot of time together. And, and it says this in, in chapter five. As in regard to the virtues, some men are called good in respect of a state of character, others in respect of an activity. So too in the case of friendship. For those who live together, delight in each other and confer benefits on each other. But those who are asleep or locally separated are not performing, but are merely disposed to perform the activities of friendship. Therefore, distance does not break off the friendship absolutely, but only the activity of it. But if that absence is lasting, it seems actually to make man forget their friendship. Hence the saying, out of sight, out of mind. And so we see here that spending time with one another and living a common life is characteristic of perfect friendship. And here he makes a really interesting distinction there, too about, and we can translate this into modernity, about the difference between real friends and Facebook friends. Uh, you know, virtual friends versus perfect friends and perfect friendship. In order to live a perfect friendship, you really have to be living a common life. Now, good friends, if they're separated, it says that, friend, that, that bond is established. And it is, is so rich and deep like virtue that it endures over time. But ultimately, like virtue, if you don't use it, you lose it. And therefore, those friendships can be compromised through separation. Now, the practical ramifications of this, I think, are really interesting, okay? It means that he's assuming that man does, is not an island. Man only thrives with other people, that we need each other like we need virtue to live a good life. We need people th to trust, okay? 
people that know us. Because again, it's only a true friend that can give you prudent advice. As we said in previous lectures, it takes knowing someone to know what the mean is for them in any given situation. And so a philosophy professor might have certain general moral norms they can communicate, but it's only a friend that is able to truly give prudential advice because it's only a friend that knows you so well to point out and to help you direct your life in terms of finding out what you should do to serve God's kingdom, to find your place, if you will, in the body of Christ. Uh, and that's the, the role friends can have, okay? They can help us to find that. And that takes trust. Uh, that takes them knowing us. Uh, and that takes time to forge. And so uh, I think this is where, okay, if we spend our days, for instance, a practical takeaway, on Facebook, connecting with people we once knew, we just have to be aware. I think it's important to keep up those friendships. But we have to be aware that every minute we spend keeping a virtual friendship alive is a minute we don't spend with the people we're, we live around, you know? And I, I'm going to take Annie's comment here. And that's why I remember I lived in Italy for five years. And we had a wonderful community in Santa Marinella, this little town. And I had friends from Venezuela, I had friends from Poland, I had friends from France, friends from all over the world. And we helped each other figure out in Italian how to fix a washing machine and ask for the right parts so we could fish, fix washing machines on our own. And, and we celebrated together. We, we, we lived a common life. But once I went back to the States, for me to preserve that indefinitely and to not engage you know, and grow where I'm planted, you know, they say, where's God's will for you? Well, where do you wake up? Uh, there is, so, I'm, I'm not engaging what is real and I'm favoring what is a shadow of reality for reality itself. Okay. And so there's a whole range of fascinating takeaways. In some ways, if, if I use a platonic analogy, it's to live and favor virtual friendship is to favor living in the cave over living outside of the cave. Uh, and, and this is something I think we should really think about, uh, uh, even in regard to what he has to say here. Okay. Uh, now, Annie, what were you going to say? You were going to comment or, 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 or ask a question? No, I was just going to say that, that another mm -hmm. aspect of this perfect friendship or a true friendship would be that because of the time you spend with this person, yeah. because of the mutual respect, you begin to know in a deep way the person's character. He talks yeah. about this sure. against slander. And so yeah. that's not something you'd ever really know about the Facebook friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's true. It, 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 it's, it, you find that out over time. You know, and, and that's a very good point. And then he adds a few other aspects. You know, he adds in, in uh, uh, all the way through chapters seven, he adds that, uh, that there has to be a kind of equality, okay, among friends. And this is why, you know, priests can be kind of friends with laymen and, and parents can be friends with children. He admits uh, when people have kind of authority over another person, there could be some forms of friendship. Uh, but, but ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, priests maybe find their best 
friends, in other priests, okay, in other people that, that can identify, can share, can understand uh, the unique challenges that someone is going through. Uh, now, he gets into here, I don't know if anyone picked up on this, something, and this is why he said that man cannot be friends with God, because God is so different that a friendship with God makes no sense. Now, I say that, though, to make more significant the incarnation, because it's because God became man that we are no longer just called slaves, but we're called friends, okay? And so Aristotle, bereft of divine revelation, uh, can't see this. But this is where everything Aristotle is saying here, I think, very much fits in many respects with our analysis of friendship. But then we're able to say, wow, that makes all the more significant that the God, the transcendent, infinite, perfect God, condescended to take our nature to himself so that we're no longer called slaves, but can be friends with God. And the significance of our faith stands out all the more. Okay. Now, there's so many other things to say, but I wanted to, like I said, save time for some of these deep questions. How is Aristotle's ethics reconcilable with our faith? Uh, I want to say something very briefly about the contemplative life. And, and because I'm running out of my voice, and because we're running out of time, I really do want to spend some time taking questions. I'm going to have to abbreviate some of what he says in book 10 and just have to say maybe some of the basics. Okay. And maybe I'll say this by way of being a little bit connecting it with our faith as well. We say that man finds his greatest dignity on which day of the week? What do you think? Which day of the week does man find? Yeah, yeah Teresa, go ahead. Yeah. Sunday. Sunday. Okay. Aristotle says something. And so what is characterizes what we do on Sunday? The things we do on Sunday from worshiping God, okay, all the way down to, to leisurely activities with family and friends, doing art, doing sport. These activities are good for their own sake. They, are, they have more to do with man's finality. Unlike our working life, which we're doing, it's a means to an end. I work so that I can be at leisure and not the other way around. And modernity has this backwards. You know? We often treat man like a machine. We are at leisure like a machine is so that it can work more. But no. Man finds his greatest dignity. Work is dignified, but at the end of the day, it doesn't reflect man at the height of his perfection. At the height of his perfection, he performs activities that have more finality, that are for their own sake. And Aristotle concludes by saying, a rational man finds the height of his rationality and perfection by living a life of complete virtue, which sets him in a place where he's able to commit his life to a life of contemplation, of looking for truth, but not just any truth, the highest truth, the truth about the prime mover, okay, which for him is a godlike principle that explains all activity. And when a man has done that, that manifests the height of a virtuous, rational, ordered life, and is in some sense its fulfillment and therefore deeply connected to man's thriving at its core. And I'll leave it at that, okay? Uh, I want to ask questions of you. Uh, so, so having 
digested, okay, much of what Aristotle had to say in, in, in our first lesson on what it means in general to explain human activity and, and how the, and what the motivations are between human activities, how they're ultimately oriented to achieve good, how that good explains everything everybody does. And then he ultimately discusses what that chief good is, okay, which is an activity of the soul in accord with the life of virtue. Then we saw what virtue is. We looked at some particular virtues. We saw the role that friendship has and ultimately contemplation has in man attaining his perfection. You know, as a good knife is one that cuts well, a good man is one that manifests reason in all that he does. And so that is, as we've discussed, a portrait of a thriving human life, okay? Now, to what extent do you think Aristotle's portrait of human thriving is compatible? And in what sense is it incompatible with human thriving according to what we know about it by way of our faith, okay? So what is the end and purpose of man for our faith, okay? Uh, you, you guys kind of know your Baltimore Catechism, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so what is the end and purpose of, of human life? There, okay. Let's let's who, who should we get? Uh, Teresa's raising her hand. She's bold. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Oh, so, you know, to quote the Catechism, it's to yeah. to know God and to love Him. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah to know, to love God. You know, serve it, Him in this world. <laughs> and, and, serve, and serve Him. Yeah. To know, <laughs> love God in this life, so that we can be happy with Him in the next. So very, very good. Okay. So if that is that, that's the purpose of man. How is that, and to what extent is that compatible with what Aristotle's saying? Thoughts? You don't have to answer. You could even say, even pick out particular ways, you know, particular ways in which Aristotle has said something that, that connects with what we might say by our faith, uh, or ways in which he says something that, you know, huh, maybe that doesn't resonate. Uh, I'm curious, kind of, what, you, what, what some of your thoughts are. Stephen, go for it. Yeah. Just to reflect on something I think before I started, it's very yeah. clear that the virtues that Aristotle speaks to become enter into the catechism right before the yeah. car. Yeah. Yeah. Well put. So, so we would say, yeah, well, well stated there, Stephen. So the, the virtues, okay. The Aristotle has, has laid out, make it into the catechism. Okay. And so uh, and Aquinas says, as grace builds on nature, so too is divine knowledge built on a solid philosophical or rational edifice, okay? And, and, and so as that applies to the moral life, all of these virtues, you know, prudence, justice, temperance, courage, and, and these other ancillary virtues of, of friendliness and liberality to be liberal and generous is obviously a good thing that is favored. Okay. And Aquinas reflects on that in his Summa Theologiae, along with all these other virtues. That is a foundation, a bedrock for man in his moral life. And then what is added on to that that we know by faith? How about the theological virtues are added on to that? Okay. And, and, and so faith, hope, and love but what's fascinating is faith, hope, and love, as grace builds on nature, faith, hope, and love can take a deeper root in the heart of someone who is naturally virtuous, okay? And, and, and so this is how even, you know, so how it's, it's all integrated, okay? It certainly goes beyond those virtues. And then there's some other interesting reflections. The gifts of the Holy Spirit have a way of perfecting certain natural virtues. 
For instance, there's a special relationship, okay, uh, between the gift of counsel and the gift of prudence, okay, which is knowledge of what to do in the here and now. Uh, the gift of counsel helps to perfect that knowledge, okay? Uh, and so we see that the, the supernatural life God gives us helps to perfect the natural life, okay? And God can do all these things kind of supernaturally in us. However, because grace does build on nature, uh, it, 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 we, we really have a need, you know, with God's help, to inculcate, okay, and to develop all these virtues, uh, which can then be perfected by the life of grace, okay? Uh, so, so that's kind of how some of that works together. Other points of contact, other ways in which there's similarities, dissimilarities. Uh, you know, uh, uh, good. Okay, so I'm going to take Annie after Ray. Ray, I'd like to hear from Ray here. Go for it. I, I was just thinking if you mm-hmm. look at Jesus's human nature and, and yeah. read the Gospels, and I'm yeah. thinking in particular yeah. the Gospel of John. Yes. And this isn't my idea. I'm taking. Yeah. And the spirit, my spirit, one of my spiritual directors, and, yeah, and fine, what yeah. you were saying, if you mm-hmm. begin to study how Jesus lived in his human nature, he actually exemplifies these virtues, mm-hmm. particularly, well, what you were talking yeah. about tonight and friendship. Yeah. And, yes. and then, uh, yeah. you know, Father Hezekiah's brother, you know, he talked. Yeah. When Jesus gave the new commandment, love one another as I have loved you. Yes. And that, Mm-hmm. Is exemplify or I? Mm-hmm. That, that's what you just said. I think is grace building upon nature. It, it is. That's it's all very well stated, right? And so, in some ways, Aristotle's insights are confirmed by God Himself. Okay, who comes and manifests these virtues? Okay, uh, and, and that is 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 kind of a confirmation uh, because again, human nature. One of the dangers of philosophy is is we can make mistakes, but God cannot deceive nor be deceived. And so what he reveals confirms that these insights are are true, but then he lives it. Okay, and that is so beautiful. God just didn't even, he didn't just give us a law, but God came as a person who lives life in the here and now, in the concrete circumstances of everyday life. And that's where Aristotle says the moral life is played out, okay? Uh, and so he actually models for us what these virtues look like. And of course, we have to appropriate them according to our own state of life. Uh, but he doesn't just even give you a treatise on virtue. He shows you by his life. And here's a great example. How Aristotle says, how does a just man act justly when he's not yet just? by following the model of a just man, by doing what a just man would do. And and that's what Christ gives to us. This is a model of how we might live. So before we have those habits built up through our own actions, we can follow him, okay? And then it becomes our own. And we step into a state of spiritual and moral maturity when through our interactions and friendships and solidarity with others and, and interacting with others, that these habits become our own and define us. And in that sense, make us then able to do things, not as a child, because their, their dad or mom told them to, 
but because we have the capacities on our own to manifest a kind of mature excellence and a mature excellence that God wants us to participate in as adults and mature members of Christ's body. Okay, that's great. Now, maybe a few other things I might add as, as we uh, near, near the end. Aquinas says this, what Aristotle says is human happiness here is the kind of happiness we can attain in this life. Okay. And so everything Aristotle says, Aquinas affirms, okay, regarding the, the kind of thriving that's possible in this life. But then Aquinas adds, but there is a thriving that exceeds, that is truly perfect, that exceeds the thriving that can happen in this life. And that's in the beatific vision. And so true or perfect happiness is completely received as a gift from God, okay? Uh, and and is, it is actualized, not in this world, but in heaven, okay? And so what Aristotle says, everything that he's saying is true. And it truly pertains to what kind of thriving man can attain in this life. But we just have to admit that the happiness of Aristotle is a kind of imperfect happiness as compared to the perfect happiness that we can attain in beatitude. Okay. Teresa, do you have a question or comment? And then, and then Annie, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. What you're saying, there were two spots in the readings that kind yeah. of, mm-hmm. of that. Yeah. Um, one of it was, he, he talked about the gods being self-sufficient uh-huh. yes. in themselves mm-hmm. and about how we have to, Mm-hmm. rely we uh, all have some means of external prosperity a need for it yeah to, to contemplate yeah um, and, and i guess that is they are more you're right it hints at that that's a great passage i know that's, that's it's in uh, book 10 uh chapter uh the last chapter or second to last chapter yeah. uh it and, and and it's true the gods even they are they don't have to be busy with building and making and doing anything, you know. Uh, God and the gods are 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 free to 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 be and to know and to act uh, w- w- without all of those kind of temporal anxieties. Okay, uh, and, and so even in that, he kind of hints at okay uh, a kind of happiness that is transcendent. Okay, uh, we, and, and and he would say the prime mover, you know. Uh, which is 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 thought thinking itself. Okay, God thinks about Himself, and 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 this is kind of you know, uh, He's pure act. It's thought thinking in itself. You know, it's not preoccupied with things be other things and even thing anyway. But but what what He says about that is is more akin to the kind of divine life. He even almost suggests that uh, that, that man can walk into. Uh, uh, we we know by by God's invitation uh, and by the death and resurrection of the Son. Oh yeah, it's good. So follow up and then Annie, and then we'll start fielding questions from the four winds. Okay. I, Go ahead. I, yeah. I was just struck by as I was reading towards the end of his yeah. chapter seven. Yeah. Talks about the complete happiness of man mm-hmm. depends on this continual contemplation of truth. And, um, and, and reason, and then he talks about that reason is divine. And, right. and then if we can do this, there's yeah. something divine in us, and that this leads then to immortality. 
Yeah, isn't that beautiful? And this is all without revelation. Exactly. And, and that is, you, you picked out a great choice there. The, thank you for sharing that. That's a beautiful selection. And, and, and man, because what sets man apart is, is, is his reason. And this is why we're made in the image and likeness of God, you know, is that we have ways of acting that, that set us apart from the rest of the material order that make us like God. And the extent to which we use these faculties as we ought, we in some ways participate and act in accord with God's will for our nature. And so connecting some of the dots here, what is a thriving man? Okay, how does that reconcile with the Baltimore Catechism? Let me take a stab at this a little bit. Uh, to know, love, and serve God in this life and, and live with him in the next. Well, we've already said with Aristotle, to know God is the height of, of man's life. And, and, and how, do we, how do we thrive uh, fully? Also in service of our brothers. Okay, and because this is where our social nature is fulfilled, everyone, uh, Aristotle's virtuous man, every one of those virtues makes us a better friend, better companion, better contributor to the common good and better servant of humanity. And so a man who is fully thriving does focus on knowing God and loving God and serving his neighbor, okay? But also, uh, you, know, a, a, you know, a man fully alive, you know, it says, uh, you know, the, 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 the man um, uh, who, who loves God is, is a man fully alive. And I think we see a portrait of what that full life looks like in the portrait of Aristotle's virtuous man. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll leave that last comment to Teresa, and then we'll take questions from other people. You were going to say one last thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I was thinking, even with what Anne was saying, mm-hmm. like, so with Aristotle, he was, not with Aristotle, with Thomas Aquinas, mm-hmm. yeah. saying that this is what happiness is here on earth. Yeah. So then you've got this capacity to reason, but this physical need and this natural need. But then as we reason and as we contemplate yes. and we go towards like the beatific vision, it, is that God drawing us in, into his self-sufficiency? It, it is. It is. It is. And that's what and I can recommend uh, Boethius, okay, is, is a great writer because he helps connect the pagan philosophers. Uh, he's a Christian himself and died in 524. Uh, he, he was basically martyred. Uh, he was put to death unjustly, certainly. And, and, and he's called Blessed Boethius. And he helps connect the dots a little bit between what you're saying and what Aristotle's vision of human happiness and how it's kind of connected to the deification that happens when man becomes full of God, he becomes like God. And, and, and participates in the divine life in a certain sense. Uh, and he connects the dots in his, his work, The Constellation of Philosophy, which is a good work for beginners in philosophy that I would recommend. Okay, excellent. Uh, thanks for all your contributions. I really like them. Um, Stephen might have another question or comment. Uh, you, maybe you can see if you can feel that, Andy. But I'll, I'll step away for a moment and, and let's take some comments from, from the four winds here too. Okay? Thanks. First of all, thank you, Dr. Wine. Appreciate it. This is kind of a whirlwind tour and um, well worth the journey as we've gone across these three weeks as we climax here on friendship. I'm going to start with, uh, Stephen wrote something in earlier before the lecture began. He was wondering 
If you could clarify, what does Aristotle mean when referring to the ready-witted, uh, a class of people he seemed to think lowly of? Think, think. Uh, well, ready-wittedness is uh, he thinks ultimately highly of of, of these people. So, uh, ready-wittedness. Uh, he speaks of in book four, chapter specifically. He mentions it in, in book two, chapter seven. Uh, but he he gives a lot of attention specifically to the virtue in chapter eight of book four. Okay, uh, so uh, it says since life includes rest as well as activity, and in this is including leisure and amusement, there seems here also to be a kind of intercourse which is tasteful. There is such a saying, and again, listening, okay, uh, to, to, to say and again to listen to what one should and as one should, okay? And then he, and then he talks about humor, okay? So the ready-witted man is one who gives amusement or pleasure by way of humor, okay? In the right way, okay? And, and what characterizes his humor is that it's rational. And it's interesting. What is humor rooted in? Incongruity. And it takes an intelligent person to be very funny, to see the incongruity in life. And it's opposed by brutishness. And this is a kind of debased, kind of potty humor. Uh, uh, the, 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 uh, not the boorish, I'm sorry. The buffoon, it's buffoonery, I'm sorry, is, is, is excessive humor. That he'll joke at any time, in any circumstance, just to get a rise out of people. So he doesn't joke for the sake of upbuilding and, 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 and making the, the experience a more noble and uplifting experience. But, he, but it's egocentric again. He jokes to get a rise, to increase his own uh, esteem and, and, and to make other people laugh. Whereas the bore is, he says, useless for social interaction. Someone who cannot hear a joke or make a joke becomes useless for social interaction. And therefore, it's even more opposed to the virtuous mean. And the ready-witted man, his, his humor is refined. It's artful. It's tasteful. It's upbuilding. Okay. And, and, and I, I think we can admit that ready-wittedness is a very, it's, it's, it's a virtue for among friends uh, who are enjoying their company uh, at, at a table conversation. Wittiness or ready-wittedness uh, helps you to be a good dinner uh, companion, uh, and, and often humor humor kind of lightens people up, so that you can talk about the deep things, so that you can talk about the very elevated and weighty things. And Aristotle sees that that that, that, that having an ability to joke and to receive a joke is is part then of an integrated life. Anyway, there we go. Okay. I'll always remember um, yeah. back in college, our, our philosophy professor, Professor Lemus, was giving us an example of uh, buffoonery. And he had oh, a, a yeah. brother who at a funeral, uh, or I, I was at a wake where yeah. they were all lined up and people were coming through and this brother had. It, wasn't an, it wasn't an Irish wake because maybe, yeah. maybe the, the virtuous mean there might be closer to buffoonery. I don't yeah, know. Exactly. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> he had one of those flowers on his shirt and that was connected to water and you'd squirt. <laughs> oh my. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's just not the time, not the time, not the time, probably not the place. Yeah, okay. exactly. Okay. That's good. Okay. Next Unless one. It's holy water. Hey, maybe. <laughs> hey, Oh, that was ready witted. That was witty right there. 
that was witty. That was upbuilding. Any manifests what what ready wittedness is <laughs> that incarnate example. That's awesome. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Nice. All right. This question's yeah. coming in from uh, Tara, and was wondering regarding our purpose as Christians, since we are made in the image of God. Does that purpose, i.e., that purpose of uh, know knowing, loving, and serving God? Does that also apply to our fellow man, such that we are supposed to know, love, and serve our fellow men? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so I, I think we, we do understand it that way. You know, the, the, the command is, you know, Christ even said in John's gospel, we were, someone's pointing out John's gospel earlier, uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, in, in the Last Supper discourse, uh, you will know you are my servants by your love. And so that service of God is is also kind of a service of those people uh, that that he has created uh, who have his dignity that kind of divine light uh, they they are kind of an image of him uh, and and so we serve God when we serve each other now here is a really cool reflection on this okay uh, from this is actually Joseph Pieper uh, uh, kind of summarizing something in Aquinas he says this that the just man okay, gives to another his due. So what do we do with God? Okay, God has given us everything, and we can't repay him. And so what does a just man do? He goes to excess in terms of devotions, prayers, sacrifices, to try to pay God, our parents, and even the state back for, 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 for what they've given us that can never be repaid. And, and that leads us, actually, to perform acts of liberality to others. Why? Because as God has given to us freely, then one of the ways we express our gratitude towards God is to give to others freely where there is no debt. And so the just man, in terms of wanting to pay his debts, is even moved because of these unpayable debts uh, he, he can never repay to God to also in his own life manifest God's overwhelming generosity by being generous with others. And in a way, that's, that's an act of gratitude to God you know, to behave in that way. I, I think it was just a, kind of a cool thing. Yeah. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah, I think we usually equate justice with like, okay, you're doing yeah. what is, you know. It's kind of a rigid thing, but in some ways, by someone just wanting to pay debts, it can actually, by, by that very reflection, turn him into a generous man uh, in, in a really interesting way. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. Well, uh, there aren't any other questions here, but I do yeah. want to make a couple of announcements as we uh, wrap up for the night. One is um, just to encourage you, I'm not going to paste any kind of formal thing in the resources, but there's a whole, I mean, one experience that's probably very common amongst everyone in the class right now is, whoa, you know, the depth of ancient writers that are, are on this topic of friendship, but also on topic of virtue in general. Um, it can be a, a spark, a great sense of wonder, like Dr. Wunsch was talking about in the first class, that there's a whole body of knowledge to explore here. And it's not just like as you go back in time, things get simpler and simpler and simpler, but there's a, a great treasure of wisdom. So I hope that this series in general sparks that in you. And uh, there's lots of other talks you could explore in the library as well. If you want to filter uh, by the pre-Christian tag 
and then you can maybe add philosophy in there, you'll get some good stuff. But also, I'd encourage you to read, uh, if, you, if you just search Seneca on friendship or Cicero on friendship, there's a lot of great and beautiful information there too that would uh, complement uh, what you've received in the series as well. So I would just encourage you to explore that. Great. Well, can I, can I finish my part of it then? Absolutely. And, and just, it, 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 first of all, just thanking everyone for your active participation. And again, I feel like we just started. We just started scratching the surface, you know. But that's 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 a good sign. That's life, you know. Mm-hmm. Is is you know, we, we, with every step we take, we open up new horizons, and 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 it's exciting. And, and this ultimately is is part of our yearning for God, who is limitless being, you know. And, and the more we 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 seek and step into these horizons, the more we are able to participate in in that life of God. Uh, and so, uh, thank you for 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 uh, you know, being such good active participants and, and, and contributing to this class. Uh, I really am grateful to you. And, and you'll be in my prayers. Pray for me. Uh, we all have a lot of challenges this time. So let's be united to one another and build each other up in prayer. Okay. I, I promise to pray for you. And I ask for your prayers for, for myself and, and uh, for the, the works, the ensue Catholic culture. Uh, but let's finish my part of it with, with a little prayer. So in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. St. Patrick, pray for us. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.